got your Bible with you, you can open up to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. If you are using the Pew Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 1047. And as always, uh, as we get to the end this morning, um, if you have any questions along the way, you can go to slido.com. Type in RevCDA in the prompt and ask your questions, and we'll take a look at those um, when we're done this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for this time, for this place, for this opportunity that we have to be together. God, you have adopted us into your family. We are a community of people um, bearing allegiance to Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are, as your church, more than the sum of our parts. God, I, I pray that as we practice this rhythm of, of Sunday morning on the Lord's Day gathering together, that we would be strengthened that we would be encouraged, exhorted, that we would learn and grow, that your word would speak to us this morning. God, I pray for my words, that they would be your words, and the ones that inevitably aren't would be forgotten and, and, and passed by us, but the ones that come from your heart that we would remember and that we would um, be impacted by. God, I pray that we would be people who are expectant and excited and shaped by the return of Jesus, that we would not be so drawn to this world that we forget that we were made for the next one. God, I just pray that you would uh, bless this time in your scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was a music major at North Idaho College like a hundred years ago. And um, as a music major, you had a core class. It was music theory. And you took it for all four semesters. And, and the first semester was like 40 people in the class. And by the fourth semester, there were only 12 of us. Um, and we got pretty close. And one of my, my uh, classmates in uh, that class all, all, all four semesters just kind of randomly would uh, sit up straight in his chair in the middle class and go, rapture practice. We had a very uh, understanding professor. This is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the rapture. Some of you maybe who are a little older in this room, uh, maybe you read The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey back in the day. It was uh, the most popular book besides the Bible in that decade that it came out. Maybe if you're a little bit younger, like me, you grew up on the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, either the books or the just epic films. <laughs> uh, I was at a used bookstore a few months ago and I came across this book, How to Profit from the Coming Rapture, Getting Ahead When You're Left Behind. 
the investment guide the Antichrist doesn't want you to read. <laughs> I didn't buy it. I regret not buying it. Uh, but this text in 1 Thessalonians is kind of the central text for this idea of the rapture. Uh, the word that we will interact with a little bit in verse 17 is, is the Greek word harpazo, uh, which means to be caught up or snatched away. When uh, a few hundred years into the life of the church, when nobody spoke Greek anymore, they translated the Bible into Latin, and the word that they chose is a word rapio, which also means to snatch or to carry away, and that's where we get the English word rapture. So this morning, I want to talk about three things, uh, and they're, they're these. First, I want to spend some time answering the question, why did Paul actually write this section of this letter? That's important. And then I want to point out maybe something important in here that we often miss in this discussion, and then I kind of want to dig into this kind of rapture idea a little bit more. So first off, why Paul actually wrote this. Look at verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. And then jumping to verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. So this is a big clue as to why this is in here. If you um, recall last week, Paul has, been, has gotten a report back from Timothy on the state of the Thessalonians and he's, he found out that maybe a few, some of them were struggling with their sexual ethic. Some of them were struggling with their work ethic and generosity and, and what that looks like. And so he kind of tackled those last week. And this week, uh, in, in verse 13, we, we see that he's giving them new material, stuff that he didn't teach them while he was there with them. But he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about this. I want to teach you this. And, and he says, the reason is because I want you to be encouraged and comforted. See, one of the significant points of Christian belief is that Jesus is going to physically return to the earth one day. He's going to put an end to evil and suffering. He's going to inaugurate a kingdom of peace and justice that's never going to end. This is a big part of the gospel that we proclaim. Jesus will come back and he will fix all the things that are broken. C.S. Lewis wrote, it seems to me impossible to retain in any recognizable form our belief in the divinity of Christ and the truth of the Christian revelation while abandoning or even persistently neglecting the promised and threatened return. The return of Christ is integral to the gospel. We're going to, at the end of our service this morning, we'll recite the Nicene Creed together. And in that classic expression of Christian doctrine, it says, he will come again to, with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. This is important. The Thessalonians have been informed by Paul, we think, about the return of Christ. It's something that he regularly taught. But it seems like some of them have died since Paul told them about it. And now they're concerned that the people that they love have been lost. They've missed out on the promise of God's future kingdom because they're dead. And so the primary point of this passage is not to give us details about the end of the world, but instead it's how we should understand grief at the loss of a loved one. Why is this an issue for the Thessalonians? In, in majority Greek culture, Thessalonica is a, is a Greek uh, city, the view of death was dark and gloomy. 
This sometimes is, is, is represented in our, in our pop culture, in our movies, but, but e- even if there was some ex- sense of afterlife, it was always in this, this realm of shadows and, and mystery, and, and people were kind of ghosts or phantoms, and you weren't really sure what that was all about. In Thessalonica, there is a tomb uh, that reads, he built this tomb that later he would have a place to rest together with his dear wife when he looks upon the end of life that has been spun out for him by the indissoluble threads of the fates. That's super touching, isn't it? See, the, the, the people of the day, they, they just, they had a fear of death because they believed that death was something that nobody wanted, that nobody could expect any joy from. When your life ends here and a new life begins somewhere else that you don't understand, it's concerning. We, we see this a lot today, right? There's, there's all these books that come out about heaven and, and coming back. And I, you know, I, I died. I, I died on the operating table. And for 10 minutes, I was, you know, I was gone. And I went to heaven. And I saw these things. And now I'm going to write a book about it. And, and we eat that up because we're concerned. We want to know what's on the other side. What's it like over there? What happens when you die? And, and when we don't know something, oftentimes we get scared I was at CYT's Beauty and the Beast last night, and this great song that the villagers sing when they're ready to storm the castle, there's a, there's a line that says, we fear what we don't understand. That's true, isn't it? And so Paul is writing to comfort the Thessalonians. In these verses, he assures them that their loved ones are safe with Jesus, that they will return with Jesus and be reunited with them. And he says, use this knowledge to comfort one another. And as we think about this, we have to be really careful because what Paul is not saying is don't grieve the loss of a loved one. What he is saying is don't grieve like those who have no hope, right? At the death of someone you love who is a Christian, you can absolutely believe that they are with Jesus and you will see them again and at the same time be wrecked with grief. Jerry Sitzer in his book, A Grace Disguise, says, catastrophic loss is like undergoing an amputation of our identity. It is not like the literal amputation of the limb. Rather, it is more like the amputation of the self from the self. This is why we can believe with everything that we have that those that we love that have died are secure in the arms of Jesus and still be devastated by the loss. They aren't suffering, we are. And so sometimes there's a tendency for those of us that aren't in the midst of grief to use passages like this to bring comfort to those that are. And this is what Paul says to do, comfort one another with these words. But we have to be really careful and, and, and pastoral as a people when we do that. It's saying like, hey, don't be sad. They're in a better place with Jesus. That's not very comforting when you're in the middle of grief. D.A. Carson says the Bible everywhere assumes that those who are bereaved will grieve and their grief is never belittled. What's the shortest verse in the English Bible? Anybody know? 
Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. What is the context of this? Jesus is at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who has been dead for four days. He comes to see the tomb. He sees the people mourning over the loss of this man. He knows well his two sisters that are grieving. And he is grieved by the death of his friend. He is grieved at the pain caused to Lazarus' family. He's probably even grieved that death exists in the first place. And he weeps. And the crazy thing is he knows that in like a minute, he is going to bring Lazarus back to life. How much more should we be allowed to grieve while still knowing that our loved ones will be reunited with us? Augustine said, Paul doesn't say that you may not be saddened, but you may not be saddened as the heathen are who have no hope. It is unavoidable, after all, that you should be saddened, but when you feel sad, let hope console you. You will likely never get over the death of a close friend or a spouse or a child or a parent, but you can be comforted by the truth that as confusing as death is, the one who is in Christ will be restored to you one day. I really, I love this line from John Chrysostom. He says, do not say then he has perished and shall be no more. For these are the words of unbelievers, but say he sleeps and will rise again, or, this is my favorite part, he has gone on a journey and will return with the king. Who speaks like this? He that has Christ speaking in him. I love that. He has gone on a journey and will return with the king. Most important in this passage is Paul's reason for writing it that we would be comforted by the hope that those that we love in Christ will be reunited with us again one day. But then there's something else really big in here that I think we can miss. And it has to do with what the Thessalonians are looking forward to. What they're afraid their loved ones have missed out on. Because see, if they are alive on the earth and their uh, loved ones who have died have gone to where they do not know, they're anticipating the return of Christ in their own lives, and they're expecting to have an experience of God on the earth. They're looking for the return of Christ to earth. They don't have questions for Paul about going to heaven They're anticipating Jesus returning to earth to rule as the rightful king. And they are worried that some of them have missed it because they've died. And this is really important to understand how Paul is trying to comfort them. And it's something that we often miss when we talk about the afterlife. Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. If, we, if we're people who believe in the resurrection of Christ, we believe that Jesus died and physically rose from the dead. He, not a ghost, not a spirit being, but a man with a human body. A different sort of human body. If you remember, Jesus seems to be able to teleport and walk through walls. That's kind of cool. But a real human body. And this is the foundation of our hope. Paul says, in the same way, if we believe that Jesus died 
and rose again, in the same way, God is going to bring back those that we have lost. See, those who have died are currently with Jesus, but they have not yet been raised from the dead. Verse 15, for we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with an archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. When Christ returns and brings all of the Christian saints with him, Paul says that they will rise. That means a physical bodily resurrection, just like Jesus. This hasn't happened to them yet, but it will one day when Jesus returns. And in our cultural context, in our, in our entertainment, in, in just kind of the way we think about things, we don't think often rightly about this. Uh, ABC poll says 78% of people polled say that people only exist spiritually in the afterlife. What does that mean? Honestly, I don't know. I, maybe it's just me, but I, I don't really discern very well the difference between spiritual me and the rest of me. I'm kind of a package, I feel like. I think in general, we don't really know how to understand that. If you've ever seen the, the Pixar movie Soul, it deals a lot with these kind of questions. And the main character is, is dead, and he's trying to eat a pizza, but he can't smell it, and he can't taste it, and it just goes right through him. I don't know how he touches it. That, they don't talk about that. But the other character with him says, oh, yeah, that's all stuff your body does, and you don't have a body now, so you can't experience those things. And that's just one way of a, a particular set of artists uh, grappling with this idea of an immaterial part of you existing independently from your body. But the problem is this is overwhelmingly how we often envision life with God in the future, whether it's the, the classic floating up to clouds and, 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 or being just kind of spirit people. And, and we just have these ideas that come to us in art and, and, and culture. But this is not the promise of the resurrection. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For we know that if our earthly tent, our body we live in, is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up in life. What he's saying is that this body that we have is broken, and it's failing and we don't want to keep it, but not because we want to be spirit beings without a physical body, but because we want a better body. We want a heavenly body, an immortal body. Paul's not hoping to be a disembodied spirit someday, but an immortal whole person, body and soul. And this is the hope that Paul is giving to the Thessalonians. Jesus is going to return, he's going to set up his kingdom, and those that have died will be physically re resurrected so that they can reap the benefits of this physical kingdom. Verse 17, then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So Paul says, those brothers and sisters that you love are safe with Jesus, in some form that we don't quite understand. But when Jesus returns to physically reign in his kingdom, he will bring them with him 
and resurrect their bodies so that they can experience the kingdom physically. But then all of God's people who were alive on the earth at that time will be caught up, there's that rapture word, into the clouds to meet Jesus and all of our loved ones together, and we will be together forever. Paul says something similar. He gives us more details in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed in incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. Paul's talking about the same event here in 1 Corinthians, the last trumpet. The dead are raised incorruptible in new bodies, new but familiar immortal bodies. And everyone who is still alive will not die, but they will be transformed into physical human people with new but familiar immortal bodies, presumably with the ability to fly so that we can meet the Lord in the air, I'm, uh, I think. So last week, we talked about sexual ethics and working for a living, and now we're talking about having immortal superbodies. That's a little bit of a whiplash, isn't it? And that's a really amazing thing, I think, about being a Christian. Everything about our lives is so normal. Love your neighbor. Be honest in your business dealings. Pay your taxes. But also, you're an immortal superhuman in the making. That's really fun to me. C.S. Lewis says it this way, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you meet now, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. Meditating on the resurrection of the dead opens up our eyes to a world that is so much bigger and more interesting than we convince ourselves that it really is. This is why the message that Jesus died for your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die is incomplete. It's true. But to believe the gospel means that on the one hand, there are so many spiritual realities going on all around us that we are just barely able to get a glimpse into and on the other hand, there are so many physical realities that God has in store for us that we can't even imagine in the future. The hope of the Christian gospel is the resurrection of the dead, that we will be made new and rule and reign with Jesus in a new heavens and a new earth. Encourage one another with these words, Paul says. Okay, those are the most important parts of the sermon today. Now let's talk about the rapture. <laughs> I grew up in a church tradition that taught something called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a pretty well put together system for explaining a lot of different parts of the Bible. 
Um, the the kind of downside to dispensationalism is that it doesn't really exist in the history of the church until the middle of the 1800s. Uh, it was first taught by a man named John Nelson Darby in England. And that doesn't make, that, that's not like a, a death blow to any theological system. But it doesn't necessarily make it wrong, but it was a relatively new way of understanding the scriptures. And, and so you kind of have to ask the question, like how did 1,800 years of Christians miss some things that, that the dispensationalists came up with? But dispensationalism is, is way outside the scope of, of today's message in total. But one of the key elements to the system is what early on in the 1850s was called a secret rapture. So Darby interpreted this passage and others connected to it to mean that Jesus would return in secret, gather up his people, return to them with them to heaven for seven years, while the rest of the world went through something called the Great Tribulation. Many of you are probably very familiar with it's very detailed. There's charts and graphs and timelines. Um, it's the subject of the left behind books that kind of tell a fictional account of, of all of these things corresponding to the system theology. So we don't have a lot of time to unpack a lot of that. But what I want to talk about specifically is that I don't think this passage is talking about a scenario where Jesus returns in secret before his second coming. Uh, I don't think there are two separate events going on here. I think this is uh, analogous with the, the return of Christ. I think there is a single return of Christ, and, and I want to show you why. Um, the, first, the first reason, these are, there's a couple words in this text that I think are really important. The first one is parousia. Parousia is a Greek word that means presence or coming or arrival. Uh, it's, the, it's the word that, that is is translated in verse 15, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming. And it's not just a word for coming. It's not like I'm coming for a visit or the three o'clock train is coming late today. It often has a very specific meaning. Uh, in, in one of the um, kind of key Greek dictionaries, the entry on Parousia says, on the one hand, the word served as a sacred expression for the coming of a hidden divinity who makes his presence felt by a revelation of his power. On the other hand, parousia became the official term for a visit of a person of high rank, especially of kings and emperors visiting a province. Overwhelmingly in the New Testament, the word parousia is used for the return of Christ. It becomes a technical term for the return of Jesus. The king has arrived. The presence of God is with us. The second word is apontesis, and it means meeting. And that word is the word that is used in verse 17. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And this word is used in a very specific way as well. Scholar F.F. Bruce says, when a dignitary paid an official visit, a parousia, to a city in Hellenistic times, the action of the leading citizens in going out to meet him and escorting him back on the final stage of his journey was called the apentasis. 
So the king is coming to the city, and the people of the city in honor come out to meet him, and then they all get into his uh, little parade and go back into the city together. Gary Shogren says, this is what happens in John 12, 13, where the crowd on Palm Sunday came out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus and accompany him back into the city. A couple other examples from the New Testament. In Matthew 25, this is a story about the return of Christ. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them, but the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, here's the groom, come out to meet him. Then the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, no, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. See, the groom arrives and there's a call to go out and meet him, but he is coming to the place where the wedding is going to take place. So they all go into the place together. Another example in Acts 18, Paul is on his final journey in the book of Acts to Rome He's been, he's, there's been a shipwreck and all kinds of stuff previous to that, and he gets to Italy, and it says in verse 14, and so we came to Rome. Now the brothers and sisters from there had heard the news about us and had come to meet us as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. So they're on their way to, the, to Rome, and a few towns away, the people recognize that Paul is coming, and so they leave Rome, they go out to meet Paul, they join his company, and they all go back to Rome together. And this is the sense that this word has throughout the New Testament. There is no place that I could find where the ones that go out to meet this person then leave with that person to another place. So because of that and a few other things, I've become convinced that the two-stage return of Christ with the secret rapture for the church prior to the great tribulation is not what this passage is talking about. Uh, and I, I'm not sure that it's taught elsewhere in the scriptures. I think there is a rapture. We see it clearly here. The word is used. Those who are alive at the return of Christ will be caught up into the air and transformed into a new kind of human person, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And I think all of that happens at Jesus' return to set up his kingdom. One more passage that I think helps us understand this because it comes from Paul, who is answering more questions for the Thessalonians in, in 2 Thessalonians. He says, now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, he's talking about the same thing, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in, in any way. For that day, the day, the coming of the Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed and man, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. See, by the time Paul writes 2 Thessalonians, they're worried not, not about their dead loved ones having missed the return of Christ, but that they've all missed it altogether. And he comforts them by saying, I told you what has to happen before Jesus returns and we're all gathered to him. A great apostasy, a turning away from God, the revelation of someone called the, the man of lawlessness. Sometimes we'll, we'll use the word antichrist and his uh, arrogance and wickedness. And Paul says this happens all before the parousia. 
And so there's a lot we could unpack there. We could do a whole year on the study of the end of the world and still not exhaust it. But I think it's important, especially when we look at this passage, to, to see what it's actually saying. And I think it's important in our understanding of especially suffering. George Ladd says this about the early church. He says, every church father who deals with the subject expects the church to suffer at the hands of Antichrist. God would purify the church through suffering and Christ would save her by his return at the end of the tribulation when he would destroy Antichrist, deliver his church and bring the world to an end and inaugurate his millennial kingdom. I think a lot of people get excited about the idea that Jesus is going to snatch us away from the world before things get really bad simply because we don't want to suffer. We don't want to live in a world where, there, where we are truly persecuted, where we go to jail or are tortured because we follow Jesus. But the reality is, is that our brothers and sisters throughout history and around the world today go to jail and are tortured because of their love for Jesus. It is from a privileged place that we live in a world of peace and safety. And we should, we should pray for that. We should work for that in society. But I don't think we should be surprised if we are the generation that sees the powers of darkness make their final moves against Jesus and his people. That, that time that we read about in the prophetic portions of the scriptures may begin any time. Or it might not begin for hundreds of years. As we close, the last thing that I want to stress about this is that for several generations in America, this issue, the issue of eschatology or uh, the study of last things, has divided churches. Whole groups of people have declared one another heretics because they have thought differently about these things. And there's, there's so many different flavors of post-millennial and pre-millennial and amillennial and pre-trib and post-trib and all of these little uh, categories of what you believe about separate passages of Scripture. And churches have split, and denominations have split, and whole schools have set up because, well, we can't go to this seminary anymore because they don't believe this about the end of the world, so we're going to start a whole new school with our own view about it. And thankfully, a lot of that has calmed down some because it's just not okay. The unity of the church is incredibly important, and we need to fight for it wherever we can. At Revelation Church, our doctrinal statement requires that, that to be a member of our church, that you believe in the return of Christ and that you believe in the resurrection of the dead. But it's silent on all the details because I think we can come to different opinions about that. You don't have to have mine. And we can still get along. So to wrap up, the important thing for us to walk away from in this text this morning is that, is that these are words of comfort that Jesus will return, that those that are his, that have died, are safe in his arms now and will be reunited with us in the future. His kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's do some Q&R.
Uh-oh, multi-part question. Here we go. I know, the box is so small. If the church is the only one to believe in the rapture, how does post-trib rapture fit with the verse saying no one knows the day or the hour? If the rapture doesn't happen pre-trib, there are a whole lot of people who can start a countdown for seven years to the day Christ comes back. Also, a lot of people would be around during the trib who could explain it, which seems to go against how the tribulation is described in Revelation. Good luck. Thank you. Okay, part one. If the church is the only one to believe in the rapture. Okay, so this is a question about eminence. So the, the, the doctrine of eminence says that you, uh, nobody knows when Jesus is going to come back, right? That, that there is, that it could happen at any moment, you have to be ready. That is a question mark because there, does, there are passages that seem to say that that's going to happen, but then there are also passages, and I just read one in Second Thessalonians, where Paul says, hey, you know, before we're gathered together to Christ, all of these things are going to happen first. And so this is, this is the, the deficiency of any of these theological systems is that in order to hold to a pre-tribulational rapture, you have to kind of make some things say kind of what they don't say. But also, in order to hold to a post-tribulational rapture, you also have to kind of fudge with some stuff over on the other side. So it's a question mark. I think what has helped me with the idea of pre- or post-trib more than anything is, is the, the idea of uh, harmonization. So if you think about the Gospels, um, all four Gospels tell the story of Jesus, right? And they're all true. They're all the inspired Word of God. But if you read them, you find that there's some details that are missing. They're different, right? Like, for instance, the sign on Jesus' cross. In all four Gospels, all four Gospels say what that sign said, and all of them are different. Atheists and online, you know, skeptics love that. Like, oh, look, the Bible's not true. A normal person would go like, well, four independent sources are are remembering events and writing down for their own purposes what pertains to what they're writing. And so it's, it's not like one of the signs says Jesus of Nazareth and the other one says like Bob from Cincinnati. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about little differences that we can go like, okay, I can put together the picture of the event. We do this all the time in the scriptures. We, we, take, we take disparate details and we harmonize them because obviously they're talking about one event. But in the, the pre-tribulationist view of the rapture, that's the place where we don't do that. We say there, there is this return of Christ that's prophesied over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and there's different details in all these accounts. And so we go, well, they must be two separate events. And as far as I'm aware, that's really the only place that we do that consistently because of the system that, that Darby put together. So when you look at texts that talk about the return of Christ, and some of them say, you better be ready because nobody knows when it could happen, and others of them say, um, this is what's going to happen before he comes back, you have to make a choice. Are you going to join those together because there's a singular return of Christ, or are you going to split them apart because there needs to be two? And so I would say in joining them together, 
And this might not be all of the texts. I didn't look at them exhaustively this week, but there's a lot of texts where the warning of no one knows is pointed at those who are wicked, who are living selfish lives. We're actually going to talk about it next week in 1 Thessalonians 5, because it says, um, the Lord will come like a thief in the night when they say peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them. But then he goes on to say, but you brothers and sisters are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. There's this whole class of people that are going to be utterly caught off guard by the return of Christ. And then Paul seems to say, but, but not you guys, you know what's going on. You're going you're to see the signs. So that's how I would deal with that. Second question is about uh, countdown timer for the seven years. Yeah. So the assumption in that question is that the tribulation is seven years long. Now, you can, you can create a seven-year tribulation in a dispensationalist system. You have to go back to the book of Daniel and count some days and some weeks and then add some other days in the book of Revelation. And that's fine. You can do that. That makes sense. But there's actually no specific text that says this is how long the tribulation is going to be. So it could be that whatever the, the last set of circumstances that precedes the return of Christ isn't literally seven years. On the other hand, it could still be seven years. And then, yeah, if we could, if we could point to the day that that starts, we could figure out when Jesus was going to return. I, I'm not sure that that's um, totally uh, likely. One reason for that is a lot of people have tried to pinpoint the, the crucifixion in the book of Daniel. There's a series of prophecies in the book of Daniel that talk about a number of weeks. And in order to do this, they, they pick a date that, that uh, um, Nehemiah goes to build the wall, and they count a number of, of days, and they, they, they get to the crucifixion of Jesus. And if you spend a little time in that math, you're kind of fudging numbers no matter how, way you, how you do it. And so to get to a specific number, I'm not sure it's possible, um, but it might be. Part three, a lot of people would be around during the tribulation who could explain it, which seems to go against how the tribulation is described in Revelation. I'm not really sure what you're referring to with how it's described in Revelation. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you have a dispensationalist bent, you will tend to read the book of Revelation without the church in it, that the church has been raptured and that every... Um, set of believers in Revelation is not the church. It's either the Jewish people or this class of people that we call the tribulation saints, which again is not something that the, the, the Bible actually says. Um, but over and over and over again in the book of Revelation, the people of God are at work. They're preaching the gospel. They're being persecuted for their faith. They're standing up against the powers of the Antichrist. Um, Yeah, I don't, I don't know what else to say about that. Last question, what does it mean to be ready? So, I think my experience of walking with Jesus, and I, I think maybe yours as well, many of you, is that we kind of go with fits and starts, right? We, we're, we're reading our Bible, 
and then we're not. We're, we're praying, and then we quit. And we're trying to love our spouse like Jesus, and then we blow up at them. And, and you, I've found that, that walking with Jesus is hard, right? The Holy Spirit lives inside of us as Christians, and he is creating us into these new people, but the work is slow. The work is tedious, And I think being ready is being about the business of walking with Jesus. And so if, if you anticipate a pre-tribulational rapture, which all of I, everything I've said about this could be wrong, and, and it, it, that could be the correct view, one day Jesus is going to just show up and all the Christians are going to get raptured. And it would be... I would say it would benefit you to be walking with Jesus, to be ready for that. What my pastor always used to say, wouldn't it be great if he raptured us right now when we're all in church? But wouldn't it be great if he raptured us anytime and we're just thinking thoughts about God and living a life that's pointed at his mission and loving our neighbors and you know, all of those normal things that we're called to do? Wouldn't it be good, good if, if when Jesus shows up, that's where he finds us? But conversely, if you think of more of a post-tribulational rapture, where we are moving towards a time where the powers of darkness are going to do one final push to destroy the kingdom of God, and after that, Jesus is going to show up and say, enough is enough, and, and end it all and bring about his kingdom. And there's going to be this period of time where God's people suffer greatly because of who they are. If you are someone who is kind of lukewarm and lackluster in your faith, if you, if you aren't spending time in the scriptures, if you don't care about Christian community, if your prayer life is flat and lifeless, man, it's going to be really hard to continue to follow Jesus if things get really difficult. Tribulation or no, when the day comes that your proclamation of faith is a jail sentence or a death sentence, like, if you're not ready for that, you don't just get ready for that. I was talking with, with Chelsea. Where there's a marathon uh, next week, and some of us are going to participate in, in running at various lengths of it. You don't just decide to do that on Sunday morning, right? Like, I've been, I've been training for six months. Why? Because you can't. You won't be ready. And I think whether you envision a pre-tribulational rapture or a post-tribulational rapture or something else entirely, being ready means being on the path with Jesus to holiness, to godliness, focusing on the word and prayer and community and mission in the world. That's what makes us ready. And I think more than anything, that's what's going to make people surprised when they either have disregarded Jesus and his promise, or they've just kind of phoned it in when he returns? Good, good questions. I'm sure you have a lot more, and so do I. <laughs> but happy to talk more if you'd like. We're going to take communion. Paul frames 
his word of comfort about the safety of those Christians that have died in the prior understanding that Jesus has died and rose again. This is the bedrock of who we are as Christians. And through the communion meal, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes because he's coming back. We'll also remind ourselves of who we are and how, whose allegiance we hold through reciting the Nicene Creed together. And again, it explicitly says that we are a people who believe in the return of Christ. And so as the band comes up, we're going to sing. Uh, we'll, we'll stand in a moment and recite the creed. I would invite you to come up and take of the communion elements, take it back to your seat. There's wine and juice per the dictates of your conscience. You're welcome to sit or stand as you worship and reflect. You're welcome to use the prayer rugs if you'd like to come and kneel. Um, but we will participate together in this remembrance of the broken body and shed blood of Christ, knowing that he paid the penalty for our sins to adopt us into his family and that he will come again to get us one day. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.